Hello and welcome to the Daily Reprieve Podcast, where the sexaholic or sex addict can find experience, strength, and hope from those that have traveled this road ahead of us. This episode is produced in the spirit of the 12th step to carry the message to other sexaholics. Every effort has been made to remove full names of the speakers in these recordings. This is done in order to follow the 11th tradition regarding anonymity at the level of press, radio, television, and film. This podcast is self-supporting through contributions. If you enjoy listening to this podcast and would like to support The Daily Reprieve, please do so by going to GoFundMe.com, search for The Daily Reprieve, and click on Donate Now. Without further ado, please enjoy today's Daily Reprieve. Hi, everyone. I'm Levi, recovering sexaholic in Nebraska. And um, I've been asked today to share my story of what it was like, um, what what I was like, what happened, and what I'm like now, or what it's like now. Um, so for me, um, my addiction started very young, when I was probably like five years old. Um, and um, my, I, I mean, I don't know how to explain how sexualized my childhood was, but um, by the time that I was ten, um, I was involved in uh, sexual abuse and incest. Um, both on the giving and receiving end, um, and already pornography and obsession and uh, and masturbation before um, my body really worked the way that it would that it was supposed to. Um, so, uh, basically, from the time that I was uh, from the time that I was you know hit puberty, I was sexually active um, in my family, and um, so I by the time that I was so besides that, my family was also pretty religious, and uh, we spent a lot of time in church. And so it was this weird uh, mix of um, religious fervor and, you know, kind of like the ideals of my faith, but also the fact that I had like this hidden life at home um, that my family knew about, and uh, but also that no one else knew about. And I was convinced that if they did know about it, um, they would hate me. Um, so when I was about 17, I had a uh, religious conversion experience in my own faith tradition, um, kind of like a recommitment time, and um, you know, I was able to give up drinking and drugs at that time and secular music, but I wasn't able to give up women, um, and I continued to be sexually active. Um, and then when I went away at 18, I went away to Bible school. Um, by then, I was I was pretty sure that I had this problem with a uh, you know, being unable to control my sexual urges. Um, and but I hoped that Bible school would help it, you know, just growing in knowledge of my faith tradition. And, um, you know, about a year and a half later, I was kicked out of Bible school um, for my sex addiction, basically, because I was promiscuous in the Bible school. Um, so I went back to my home state and... Um, was still practicing my addiction um, now with, uh, uh, you know, girls that I'd grown up around and um, just getting myself worth from being able to seduce them. Um, so at about 22, I had met my wife and we uh, we got married 
I had about I was 22 and she was 19, and then right after that I got a ministry position as a part-time uh, minister, um, well part-time ministry and part-time like after-school program type of a thing, um, and you know I was still a sexaholic. My sexaholism followed me, so I remember especially during my times in ministry obsessing over uh, the people I was ministering to, which was underage girls. Um, and uh, obsessing over and fantasizing about coworkers, getting infatuated with one coworker or classmate after another, and that was kind of that period of my life, and that was the cycle. Um, uh, we put a lot of I, at that time. I was I tried to put a lot of my like sobriety recovery on my wife. You know, I'd make her like the one that had the password to my internet filter or whatever. Um, and uh, mostly, what that did for me was to make me into an internet hacker, um, so that I could get around those things. Um, so, uh, here about uh, 2007. So my life went on pretty much like that, like a binge and purge cycle um, for uh, several years. And then here about in 2007, I moved to Nebraska and got involved in a church and in particular got involved with a, a minister in my, my current faith tradition um, who, uh, you know, in, uh, in our tradition, you know, we spend a lot of time talking about really deep parts of our lives. And so I completely came clean with him. And he and I were really open over the last 10, 12 years about how that it was clear that I was a sex addict and I needed help. Um, but, uh, you know, we're confused about whether or not we would, uh, whether or not therapy or a 12-step program would help or hurt a problem if it would ex uh, make the problem worse. Um, anyway, in 2016, I was... Uh, um, obsessing over coworkers, sending suggestive text messages to them and things, and trying to get affairs going. Um, and uh, thank God I was unsuccessful. But then I um, had gone to therapy through my work to deal with workplace stress. And one of the things I said was, you know, do you know you don't think it has to do with me being sexual or trying to be sexual with my coworkers? And the therapist was not a sex addiction therapist. But she said to me, yes, that's probably probably a big part of it, and you need to stop that. So um, she referred me to a sex addiction therapist, and I started doing that. And it was really helpful at first to come clean and start to talk about that, um, to start to dig into my trauma. Um, and my therapist suggested to me a period of sexual abstinence with my wife. My wife was on board. I thought she was more on board than she should be. Um, and uh, so I, frustration for me. Um, but that was made it really clear to me that I was just as addicted to sex and lust in my marriage as I was outside of my marriage um, because I could be having an active sexual life with my wife um, and still be, you know, obsessing over the next time we would have sex or obsessing over, um, you know, somewhere else, something else. Um, so <clears throat> especially as I was in therapy, uh, I... Um, that there in June and July of 2017, I had kind of my first, my last big binges. And one of them, I was uh, binging on porn and was just not uh, even caring and maybe even wanted to get caught. My wife was out of town and I had, I was sitting in my room watching porn and had my door hanging open, kind of hoping to get caught by my daughter, who's a teenager. Um, and uh, without any really concern for that, um, how that would go. Um, so, 
Then the last time that I masturbated was July 20, July 19th of 2017. And then on July 23rd, I came into my first meeting and it was just me and one guy. And this meeting was an hour from my house. Um, I, my therapist had convinced me to go. And so I went and I was really nervous and it was one guy. Um, and, uh, you know, he did the best he could to carry the message to me. Um, uh, you know, as I later found out, he wasn't sober. He was kind of keeping the meeting going, but he wasn't necessarily sober or working the program. Um, so in our state, what, one of the things that they do that I'm, I think is fairly unique is that they have, um, a lot of physical, there's physical meetings, especially in Lincoln, which is two hours to the east of me, um, where they will have phone meetings or they'll have physical meetings that have a, a conference, have a phone on the you know, on the table, and so people from all over the state can call into that meeting. Um, and so that's actually where I started calling into that meeting um, and connected with some sober members, um, you know, guys who had four, five, six, whatever. Um, and um, as I was trying to work through that, you know, I did get a number of a guy who had, who was his sobriety dates in 1993, and um, he was one of the first guys that I called um, to talk about some stuff. And, uh, I was, uh, a little put back, put aback by his, um, I don't know what I, what I would consider, consider to be kind of a tough love approach. He's very blunt. Um, and so I was complaining about, I must've sounded whiny because I, I was complaining about, um, this, the period of abstinence with my wife. And he said, well, you know, if you're, I was, sober for 12 years before I got married. So you understand that means I was celibate. So you're kind of complaining to the wrong guy, you know, take that somewhere else. Um, so, um, but I knew that that guy had what I wanted. Um, so in August, 2017, we have an intergroup retreat every year in August, 2017, I, I went to that and I've been talking about getting a sponsor and I've been talking to these sober guys in Lincoln about helping me find a sponsor. And I asked, one guy to help me find a sponsor and he never did help me find a sponsor. He just told me to call him tomorrow. And so I called him tomorrow and then I kept calling him tomorrow. And by the end of the week, I realized that he was my sponsor. Um, so I, you know, we started to work together, the daily check-ins and things. Um, I wrote my first step and, uh, shared that with him, um, which was a pretty traumatic experience for me. Um, because it was so, uh, I felt so my emotions were so raw, um, and, uh, but also very helpful. I think, um, I, uh, so somewhere in there, right about this time, I 12 stepped my neighbor by text message. I basically just texted him and said, Hey, do you know anybody who struggles with porn and masturbation? And he said, yeah, me. And, uh, so then we got to talk in by text message about essay and so on. And from there, probably like September of 2017, sometime in there, we started having nearly daily meetings on my front porch. Um, just the two of us, I mean, not a meeting, obviously, but um, me sharing what I was learning and what I was going through and everything. Um, so uh, in September of 2017, also, my sponsor had me drive to Lincoln, which is two hours away again, to share my, to give away my first step to a meeting in Lincoln to a bunch of strangers. Um, but it was it was good and it was difficult, but it was good for me to make those connections with people in the fellowship in Lincoln um, and uh, to expand. And I realized how much I needed um, 
how much I needed, um, uh, you know, sex drunks in my life in order for me to stay sober. Because, you know, I've been working the religious cure and the therapy cure and so on for so long um, that it was like a revelation to me that just basically by uh, having this fellowship that I could have a degree of freedom that I'd never known. Um, So right after basically I... um, gave away my first step, I asked my sponsor in one of our daily check-ins, you know, how long do I have to be sober to start uh, a meeting? And he said, it doesn't matter, start a meeting. And I said, well, I've been thinking about calling some of these pastors around town. And he was like, go ahead and do it. Um, And so I, so some of the things that were inspiring me at the time was in the, in the meeting in Grand Island, there's a, uh, there's a reading from the big big book where it says something like experiences taught us that nothing so ensures against a possible slip as intensive work with another sexaholic. It works when other all else fails um, and so on. Um, I'm sure you're familiar with the reading. So I, uh, that, and then in the chapter getting started in the white book, um, you know, I was really inspired by this idea that like, if I really want to stay sober, I have to find someone to give it away to. Um, and, uh, and in particular about that time I was reading my way through the big book and reading through the stories kind of in the middle of the big book, there's, uh, the stories of the pioneers, the early, early folks in the fellowship that were starting meetings, um, when they were two and three and four and five and six months sober. Um, and, uh, so I, so I mean, I got, I got really fired up about it. Um, you know, I was also listening to some speaker tapes that I found online, um, and uh, one one new, one old timer, especially in Nashville, talks about how you know they won't lose respect for my recovery like they would lose respect for my active addiction. And see, my thing is that I'm I'm 100% positive that if I stay active in my addiction, I will go to jail, get a divorce, or lose my job, or some combination of the three. Um, and I don't know honestly if I would physically survive any of those three. Um, because the amount of shame and pain and trauma that that would cause. So that was that was easy way to motivate me. So um, I started calling pastors and therapists, and I would say that it was compulsive. It was like um, when I felt restless, irritable, and discontented, this is what I would do in order to stay sober, um, was I had a list of pastors, and I would call them, and this is basically what I would say. Hi, my name's Levi. I'm calling you about a 12-step recovery program for sex addiction. Um, well, actually, usually I would start by asking, do you know? Do you have anybody in your church who struggles with porn and masturbation? And uh, they would, after after they uh, picked their, their jaw up off the floor, because that's a pretty bold way to start, then I would start in with about the 12-step recovery program and um, – Basically, I would share a little bit of my story, you know, that I'm a recovering sex addict, and I know that I have to give this away if I'm going to stay sober. Um, you know, I'm X days, X number of days sober, and uh, I, I can't, I can't go back out. Um, and so, I, you know, that drove me, right? So I'm calling pastors like this. Uh, maybe I'd call like two or three in the morning and then leave them voicemails and then they'd call me back during the day and I'd have that conversation. Um, I, uh, I set up like a, uh, an anonymous email address. I'm sure everybody knows about that. So I set up an anonymous email address so that then I could email um, them information. You know, I'd send them like meeting lists or whatever because at the time, like I said, there was no meeting in Kearney. Um, so about like a month into this, um, I had – 
a pastor asked me, well, do you have a uh, place for the meeting? And I said, well, no, not yet. I was thinking that probably God would have somebody, have one of you guys offer me a place. And that's what I was counting on. Um, and he says, well, we've got a place, you know, we have like a second location, a satellite location that we want to use for community events during the week and it's available, you know, why don't we meet? So I met with that pastor and, uh, I shared with him more of my story than I normally would, um, with these pastors. And one of the things that he said to me that was re- that really, re- really rang in my ears was that over the years of being trying the religious cure so hard, so fervently, um, I had stopped believing that God could and would if he were sought. It's not his words, but that's kind of how I heard it, you know, was like I, that I stopped believing it. And so um, for me, um, that conversation and even like 12 step work while I was still working on my second and third step um, was like my second and third step experience. And I remember about that time, my, my sponsor said to me, you know, it's really cool how you're trusting God. You're so desperate for sobriety that you're trusting God with the results um, and just putting it out there and not really concerned for how this could come back and bite you in the butt. And, um, <laughs> I, I didn't really realize, you know, I, I said that to him, well, I guess I didn't really, I never really thought of it that way. I hope this doesn't come back and bite me in the butt. Um, but, uh, you know, I kept doing that. Um, and, especially with my pastor, you know, I gave him permission. I've given all these pastors and therapists as I've connected with them permission to send people directly to me if they need help or, you know, give them the information on the meeting. And so um, I've had the opportunity to, um, you know, continue 12-stepping some friends and, you know, people in my church and things like that um, and uh, to see them come into the program and get sober. Um, So for me... Um, that 12 step work is really what drove me through some of the bumps because I continue to work the steps with my sponsor, right? So it wasn't like, oh, you started a meeting, you you get a pass. Um, So I continue to work the steps with my sponsor. So when I hit those roadblocks, you know, like step step four and five and step eight and nine, um, you know, when I hit those roadblocks, part of what I was doing, I, I really think was using that 12 step work to deal with the anxiety that that would cause or the disturbance that that would cause for me. Um, so I, uh, you know, we started a meeting in November, 2017 and, um, in May, 2018, we had a, uh, um, we had a half birthday meeting, I called it, um, and a half birthday speaker meeting. And we had, we had people from Lincoln and Grand Island and Kearney there. And, you know, we had 16 or 18 guys in the room. And, uh, you know, about half of those were from were people here in our town. And, uh, you know, the big thing that I think is that uh, this experience of reaching out to others, having the support and the care and, the you know, I don't know, positive words and prayers of these pastors and therapists that I've reached out to, to find more sex drugs has convinced me about God's love. Um, you know, that, so that, that's a part two of how like my, my third, my second and third step experience um, is all bound up in that, in that 12 step work and the sense that it convinced me that God could love me unconditionally. Um, you know, it says in the white book that what, what if, what if, uh, 
what if God is for the sexaholic, it says. And it talks about how, that, how grateful we should be that we have these weaknesses that will make us rely on him more. Um, so, you know, today, um, you know, I, I try to help others. I sponsor others. I still do some of this 12-step work as far as, as calling pastors and therapists. Um, we have a phone line in our meeting so that people can call in. Um, and uh, so that people from out in the surrounding area can call in that don't have a meeting. Um, I, you know, I I'm try to be of service and share my story when I can. Um, and, um, you know, for me, that's, that's really the purpose of it, right? In the big book, it says that the purpose of this program is to be fitted of max, for maximum usefulness to God and our fellows. Um, and for, for me to see that, these awful experiences that I had as a child, um, horrible traumas that I, you know, that were done to me and that I did to others um, and that I did to myself, um, that those can be used by God as a tool to help others and bring others into a, a conscious connection with him. Um, that's a pretty huge deal. And it makes me feel really loved, especially when I get an opportunity like this to share my story with all of you. Um, so like I said, um, my sobriety date, I guess I didn't say it clearly, my sobriety date is July 20th, 2017 still. And um, I'm really, really grateful for that. And I'm grateful that as long as I stay sober and keep helping others and making phone calls and doing the steps and listening to my sponsor, I don't have to do any of those things I used to do anymore. Um, and uh, I can have a completely new life. So thanks for letting me share.